0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 16, Numbers chapter 14 continued. Uh, Last week, beginning in Numbers 13, and then we moved on into Numbers chapter 14... We began to take a look at the rebellion of the people of Israel and what the consequences were going to be. And the rebellion centered around the scouts of the 12 tribes going to Canaan to gather intelligence and then to bring that back to the decision makers. And by the way, these scouts themselves were leaders. So their reports were given with authority. Now, 10 of those 12 advised that to try and take that land from the various peoples that occupied it would be suicide. As the word of the scouts' reports circulated around the camp, the people began to panic. And as it happens, when we let our guard down, the truth comes out. The people openly expressed their feelings that they wished the Lord had never redeemed them from Egypt in the first place. They preferred to stay in slavery to a cruel taskmaster in Egypt than to have that opportunity to claim the inheritance God had set aside for them. Why? Because the task ahead seemed dangerous. It was daunting. Most of all, it was unfamiliar. What was required of them was outside of their comfort zone. In the leaders deciding not to enter the land and the people agreeing with them, God saw this as rebellion against him of the worst sort. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. We're going to read the first 12 verses only. It's page 163 in the complete Jewish Bible. At this all the people of Israel cried out in dismay, and they wept all night long. Moreover, all the people of Israel began grumbling against Moses and Aaron. The whole community told them, We wish we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we died here in the desert. Why is Adonai bringing us to this land where we will die by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will be taken as booty. Wouldn't it just all be better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the entire assembled community of the people of Israel. Yahushua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Yaphune, from the detachment that had reconnoitered the land, they tore their clothes and they said to the whole community of Israel, The land we passed through in order to spy it out is an outstandingly good land. If Adonai is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land. He'll give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just don't rebel against Adonai. And don't be afraid of the people living in the land. We'll eat them up. Their defense has been taken away from them. Adonai is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But just as the whole community were saying they should be stoned to death, the glory of Adonai appeared in the front of the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Adonai said to Moses, How much longer is this people going to treat me with contempt? How much longer will they not trust me, especially considering all the signs I performed among them? I'm going to strike them with sickness, destroy them, and make from you a nation greater and stronger than they are. You know, in the first few verses we see something interesting that we'll get into a little later on in this lesson. We see the people wailing and crying all night long. And although it doesn't say so, it was simply cultural and understood that they would have been crying out to God. Middle Eastern culture is so different than Western. Western culture tends to be more reserved, and our emotions are outwardly limited to what's acceptable within our society. When we of the Western Church want to feel especially pious before God, we'll attend church a little more. Or maybe we'll volunteer. Or we'll talk about the Lord a little more. Or we'll go before our congregation and ask for prayer. Not a thing wrong with any of that, by the way. In the Middle Eastern culture, Loud and public wailing and tears and flinging oneself onto the ground is more the norm. When we look on the news about tragic events in Iraq and in Israel and Afghanistan, we see people upset and in mourning, we see all of what I just described to you and more going on. However... Culture is culture and sincerity is sincerity and they aren't necessarily connected. Okay, Whether it's the actions of a Western or an Eastern culture. Thus we have the people of Israel wailing and crying out to God, we're told, all night long. At the very same moment, they're grumbling and threatening rebellion against God's hand-picked leader and ordained mediator, Moses. And the boot... They accuse God of not really even having their best interests at heart. You know, rather this kind of this whole Exodus thing is just some kind of cruel hoax being played out on a bunch of helpless folk. You know, I think we can say this much for the first four verses of Numbers fourteen. If you have a problem or a worry, or you even have a bone to pick with God, these passages passages show us precisely the wrong thing to do. And God's reaction to what they did was going to be pretty predictable. Verse 5 of Numbers 4 says, uh, Numbers 14 rather, verse 5 of Numbers 14 says that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the congregation. No, they weren't worshipping the elders. They hit the dirt because they were expecting a pretty severe reaction instantly from God. Okay. That, and they were in utter disbelief of what was happening before their eyes. Such that their knees grew weak, they fell to the ground in despair. But, now enters Joshua and Caleb. Now, it's interesting that up to now, Joshua apparently had been silent. It right, was actually a, a sign of mature leadership, that he'd sort of let the others have their say. Because, you know, he was already Moses' assistant and protege. So the people, they knew where he stood. Now, Caleb had stated his position well, and Joshua had no reason to simply repeat it. But now as a team, Joshua and Caleb exhort the people to reconsider. They remind them how wonderful this land is, and that if if Israel will just obey God, trust him, he'll deliver the land over to them. Well, the pair... Turn the conclusions of those elders inside out. The elders fear the people of Canaan, but Joshua and Caleb said, don't fear them. The elders say, disobey God and stay out of the land. But Joshua and Caleb say, don't rebel against the Lord. Go forward, take the land. In fact, they say that because the Lord has removed the protection from the Canaanites, that they're now our prey. Pretty bold. This is the attitude that our Father is seeking from us. Not foolish chutzpah, all right, based on some false sense of self-importance or delusions of grandeur about our own abilities or our strengths. Rather, absolute trust that when the Lord says, He will, He will. Then when the Lord says don't worry, believe it. The game is fixed. People, the game is fixed. (laughs) The outcome's already determined. Nothing's going to change the decree. However, the victorious outcome can at times be postponed due to our fears and our disbelief. Or the Lord might use other people, maybe later later generations, to achieve his will, when the current one could have been blessed if only we had been obedient. There have been some pretty interesting midrashim by the rabbis of old about what is meant by Joshua's statement that the Canaanites' protection has departed from them. Was this just an expression? Did it reflect maybe an part of an ancient belief system? The Hebrew word that's usually rendered protection here is "sel," "sel," And it literally means shade. Like sitting under the shade of a tree. It indeed does give the impression, if you would, of, of an umbrella. An umbrella of protection. In this case, one that's been over Canaan. But because the sentence in its plain Hebrew meaning is their protection, meaning Canaan's protection, is gone and instead now the Lord is with us, the obvious intention is to indicate that the former protection over Canaan was of divine nature. But that divine protection has now been lifted, so Canaan is vulnerable and it's ripe for the taking. And then this is where the rabbis go off into discussions of guardian angels of nations. Now this in and of itself is a very fascinating subject. Because in actuality the Bible says very little about the nature of angels. We get hints of spiritual beings, godly spiritual beings, who are assigned by the Lord to watch over a specific nation. Or to carry a message to a nation or even to fight for a nation. But no details about it whatsoever. So most of what we observe today and think today about angels and demons really doesn't come from scripture, but from the writings of rabbis. Point being, that what Joshua is getting at is that God is on the side of Israel and there is no longer any kind of spiritual protection over Canaan, whether it was evil or whether it was good, that can prevent Israel now from victory over Canaan. Now, is there good scriptural basis for making that the proper interpretation? That indeed Joshua really meant that the protection of a very real and existing spiritual being over Canaan had been withdrawn. Well the answer to that is yes. Okay turn your bibles to Daniel 10. Daniel 10. If you have the complete Jewish bible it's page 1113. Uh, Daniel chapter 10. We're going to read the first 14 verses. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, also called Belt Shetzar. The word was certain. A great war. He understood the word, having gained understanding in the vision. And at that time, I, Danielle, had been mourning for three whole weeks. I hadn't eaten any food that satisfied me, neither meat nor wine had entered my mouth. I didn't anoint myself once until three full weeks had passed. Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was on the bank of the great river Tigris. When I looked up, and there before me was a man, dressed in linen, wearing a belt made of fine Ufaz gold. His body was like beryl, his face looked like lightning, his eyes like fiery torches, his arms and feet were the color of burnished bronze, and when he spoke, it sounded like the roar of a crowd. Only I, Danielle, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see the vision. However, a giant trembling fell over them, so that they rushed to hide themselves. Thus I was left alone. And when I saw this great vision, there was no strength left in me. My face, normally pleasant looking, became disfigured. I had no strength. Now I heard this voice speaking. When I heard him speaking, I fell down in a faint with my face to the ground. Then a hand touched me and raised me, tottering to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Now pay attention to the words I'm saying to you and stand upright. For it is to you that I have been sent. And after this he he said this to me, I stood up trembling, and then he said, Don't be afraid, Danielle, because since the first day that you determined to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of what you said. The prince of the kingdom of Persia prevented me from coming for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to assist me, so that I was no longer needed there with the kings of Persia. So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people. And the akhirit hayamim, the days to come, the latter days, the end times for there is still another vision which will relate to those days. I'm going to pretty much let that stand alone because here we see Daniel directly told of a confrontation between a prince of Persia, meaning a spiritual force, apparently one in opposition to God, that had hold of Persia. And this Angel of God who received the help of the mighty archangel Michael was the one that was speaking to Daniel. All right. and he had come to over, he, he had come to overcome that, that evil prince. So the idea that there actually are angels, specific angels assigned to watch over people and nations of people, not just God's people by the way, but other people as well, is directly spoken of in the scripture. This is just one of several instances, by the way. Therefore, when in Numbers 14 Joshua says that there was no more spiritual protection over the people, there was no more shade umbrella over the people of Canaan, spiritual shade, he meant it literally. Joshua's response to the people in his siding with Moses and Aaron brought the people's anxiety and rage to a boiling point, and they threatened to stone Joshua and Caleb, and presumably Moses and Aaron as well. The people had made up their minds. They really didn't want to hear any more sermons, to the contrary. The Lord himself now comes to the rescue by his presence coming down upon the tent of meeting so that all Israel could see it. This seems to have put a stop to the mob's murderous intentions. When the Lord says to Moses, that does it. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start all over with you. From you, Moses, I'll create a new people of faith. In fact, the nation I make out of you will even be larger than the three million Israelites now alive, but who are about to be dead by my hand. Let's continue reading in Numbers Go back to uh, Numbers chapter 14. We'll start reading from verse 13 through 24. However, Moses replied to Adonai, When the Egyptians hear about this, and they will, because it was from among them that you by your strength brought this people up, they will tell the people living in this land. They have heard that you, Adonai, are with this people. That you, Adonai, are seen face to face. That your cloud stands over them. That you go ahead of them in a column of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. If you kill off this people with a single stroke, then the nations that have heard of your reputation will say that the reason Adonai slaughtered this people in the desert is that he wasn't able to bring them into the land which he swore to give to them. So now please, let Adonai's power be as great as when you said Adonai is slow to anger, rich in grace, forgiving offenses and crimes, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effect of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and even by the third and fourth generations. Please forgive the offense of this people according to the greatness of your grace, just as you have borne with this people from Egypt until now. Adonai answered, I have forgiven, as you have asked. But as sure as I live, and that the whole earth is filled with the glory of Adonai, none of the people who saw my glory and the signs I did in Egypt and in the desert, yet tested me these ten times and did not listen to my voice, will see the land I swore to their ancestors. None of those who treated me with such contempt will see it, but my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit with him, and has fully followed me, him I will bring into the land he entered, and it will belong to his descendants. There are a couple of um, very fundamental God principles contained within these few short verses, and we're going to discuss them both. And the first one is contained in Moses' plea to God not to destroy so many people. Now Moses pleads with Yehovah not to annihilate the guilty adults of Israel. And he uses the same basic argument to talk to God, to talk God out of destroying essentially the entire Hebrew race as he used back in the Golden Calf incident when God determined to do the same thing. And the argument was that when all the people of those Gentile nations heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob destroying the very people he had raised up, the nations of the world would assume that it was because God simply wasn't able. To do what he had promised. To give that land to land of Canaan to Israel. Therefore, they would think that the God of Israel was a rather impotent God. So God responds to Moses' plea in verse 20 by saying that he will relent and do as Moses asked and pardon the people of Israel. Now, what we're dealing here is with a matter of repentance of God's people. How to obtain it And then God's reaction to it. Now this is certainly something that ought to interest every believer in the God of Israel. And especially those who call upon the name of his son, Messiah Yeshua. Now unlike the religions of their neighbors, the rituals of Israel were not operative and effective merely by observing them. While the desired ritual could be carried out precisely by a priest, that did not equate to automatic forgiveness. Rather, forgiveness is another step, if you would. Believer and priest carry out the rituals as ordained, but then God takes the definitive action of accepting, or not, the ritual and granting pardon. Now, this is something that has become lost time and time again within Judaism. Yet, at the same time if you asked a Jew that by merely performing a ritual was he forgiven usually he would say no. So forgiveness is a divine decision and it's not brought about merely by observance of a ritual. Equally so It's not enough to only hope and pray for forgiveness. Man must submit himself before God, agree that he's wronged the Almighty, and then present an honest and sincere inner resolve to avoid that sin from here forward. The Psalms especially show us that confession and true repentance must be part and parcel with any advance towards God, usually by means of our prayers, asking for pardon. If the heart isn't involved, if the conscience is left out, then no level of sacrifices, no amount of wailing all night long, bitter tears, being prayed over and anointed by others, pleading, monetary payments, tithing, fasting, any other physical act is going to matter before God. So there must be both inner change and outer behavioral modification. Remorse must always be followed with deeds. And the works and actions must be observed on two levels. The ceasing of evil works and the doing of good works. Let me say that another way. When it comes to repentance and forgiveness, man has a part. And God has a part. Man's part consists of a lot more than private prayer or walking an aisle for public recognition. God's part is to observe the man and make a judgment. Is this man sincere? Is he going to diligently exert effort to change his actions and have his heart changed? If the answer in God's perspective is yes then forgiveness is granted. Otherwise, it's not. And the man's status before God as being out of favor remains upon him. Now note this as well. Moses could sway the Father. This is a great and awesome principle for the people of God to grasp. Intercessors and mediators can curb divine retribution. The implications of this are larger than we really have the time to explore here tonight. But catch this. This means that God is interactive with those who he has set in charge of things. All things are not necessarily decided in advance. God may know all things in advance... But his plans and intents can be altered and moved when certain righteous men approach him and ask for mercy and grace and it's in his will to do so. As the greatest greatest mediator who ever lived once said while he was in the throes of death, nailed on a cross, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. One has to assume that Yeshua knew full well that the Father was about to condemn those who had put his Son to death. So he asked for mercy for them. Your intercessory prayer matters. It counts. It will elicit a response from the Lord. You can influence God. Again, provided, of course, that what you ask is within His will. The good news is that we're not hapless marionettes being manipulated by the Creator simply dancing to a predetermined long ago tune. Otherwise, where's the relationship? When one is a robot and the other its operator, there's no relationship. There must be give and take. There must be meaningful communication between the two parties in order for there to be a true relationship. And boy, I wish I had understood that when I was a much younger man. Now, I don't know how far I want to get into it, but there is a second rather significant theological principle that is revealed and demonstrated here in this dialogue between Moses and the Lord one that's rarely discussed in a modern church setting. And it's one that the rabbis call the principle of vertical retribution. And the concept is this, that God may, in his will, move the punishment a father is due to his offspring. Or he may take mercy due to a father, and transfer that to his offspring. And we're going to find this principle in play in Numbers 14 when we hear Moses say to God in verse 18, Adonai is slow to anger, rich in grace, forgiving offenses and crimes, yet not exonerating the guilty but causing the negative effect of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children, even the third and fourth generations. Now, in case it hasn't struck you yet as to what Moses is asking, he is asking God to transfer some or all of the retribution that was due all, to all those adult male Israelites that were rebelling He was asking to transfer some of that to their children and their children's children. Saying, what? Yeah, that's what he was asking. See, this vertical retribution concept was around long before Israel and Moses. We find mention of it even in an ancient Hittite document. When a fellow named King Mercilus is quoted as saying, And so it is, the sins of the Father have come upon the Son, and so my Father's sins have come upon me. The idea is that an innocent party bears the divine punishment in place of the guilty party. Sound familiar? But the parties are of the same family. Just different Generations. We cannot get away from this principle in the Bible. Noah declares a curse upon his grandson, Canaan, for what Canaan's father, Ham, did. Vertical retribution. Ahiah, the prophet says, that the sins of Yeruboam will be placed upon the head of his son, Abiyah. Another Abiyah. Okay. Vertical retribution. We're told that the sins of Baasha will be visited upon his son, Elah. Vertical retribution. And there are many more places in the Holy Scriptures that quote this same idea that the sins of the father will be placed upon his children down to the third and fourth generation. Now, in addition to punishment, though, mercy can also be passed forward. Listen to Psalm 103, 17-18. But the Lord's steadfast love is for all eternity towards those who fear Him, and His beneficence is for the children's children of those who keep His covenant and remember to observe His precepts. Now, part of this principle of vertical retribution is that under certain circumstances, punishment due to someone is essentially postponed to a later time. And in Bible terms, it is postponed to a later generation. And that circumstance that legally allows God to postpone the punishment is the repentance and the contrition of the one who's committed the sin. So if a father commits a sin and then repents he acknowledges his wrongdoing and he asks for mercy then god may in his mercy pass that punishment forward upon a later generation listen to the case of ahab in first kings 21:29 because ahab has humbled himself before me i will not bring the disaster in his lifetime but i will bring the disaster upon his house In his son's time. So what Moses is asking of God is to show mercy towards the adult parents who rebelled against him by postponing that punishment due to them. And God kind of meets Moses halfway. He says he will not summarily destroy those guilty parents, but in a postponed retribution he will also not permit those who committed this great sin against him to ever enter the land. Their sin is so great, and they have shown no remorse, no contrition, that they will have to bear at least some of that punishment. They will die natural deaths in time, out in that desert wilderness, with the punishment being they'll never personally inherit the promised land. Further, in verse 32, there is another penalty to be paid. And it is to the offspring... Of those guilty adults who will pay a price for their parents' rebellion, as it says. But you, meaning you adult Israelites, your carcasses will fall in the desert. And your children will wander about in the desert for 40 years, bearing the consequences of your prostitutions. till the desert eats up your carcasses. So the punishment upon the guilty was both postponed and at least partially realized, and the remainder of it placed upon the innocent children of Israel. Now, let me talk about one other interesting aspect of this principle, and we'll move on. And it resides in the word pardon, or forgive, which we find in verse 19. In that verse, Moses says to God, please forgive, please pardon, the offenses of this people according to the greatness of your grace, just as you were born with this people from Egypt until now. Pardon or forgive actually kind of misses the rich fullness and impact of the original Hebrew word here. Salah. Salah. Moses asks for Salah from the Lord. And though it generally does mean pardon or forgive, Salah is a divine kind of pardon. It's a divine forgiveness that's not available from a human. That is, we would never hear of a man pleading for Salah from another man. Salah, by definition, is an act of God. Further, the word Salah carries with it the idea that what is pardoned is only the punishment for the sin. But the offense itself is not pardoned. Further, there is an element of healing and reconciliation involved in the meaning of the word salah. So when Moses asks Yehovah for salah and God says, okay, I give you salah, what is happening is that God is saying he will pardon the punishment for the rebellions by means of postponing it. And he will allow a continued relationship between those people who committed that rebellion and himself. And even more, the reconciliation contained with the essence of the word Salah points to the continuation of the covenant that was made on Mount Sinai. So what a great mercy is hidden in all this. Okay. Further, in verse 19, when Moses asked that God would grant salah according to your great kindness, the English word kindness kind of misses the mark. Okay. In Hebrew, Moses says, according to your great hesed. The significance is that chesed does not refer here to kindness, but rather to his to God's steadfast commitment to the covenants and to the promises he has made to Israel. In fact, the Hebrew word said is used here as almost a direct synonym for the word berit, which means covenant. So Moses is actually beseeching God's mercy according to your great covenant. That's the essence of it. So the sum total of what Moses pled with God for on behalf of rebellious Israel and what God granted was that God would divinely pardon the punishment of that was due the Israelite adults for the rebellion, that God would allow reconciliation with the people of Israel, and even more, that God would continue to honor the covenants he'd made with them. And that he would allow Israel to maintain their relationship with him. It was understood, however, and hear this please, that the sin, the iniquity of the people for what they had done, would remain against them. It was not wiped away. Israel would remain as guilty people. That guilt would never leave them. They'd have to always answer for this offense before God. Now understand, this deal between God and Moses as regards this particular rebellion is but an example of the principle of vertical retribution. And the principles behind this example are demonstrated in several other biblical stories. Now I went through all this as a means to point out the difference between the kind of forgiveness or pardon available to mankind before the advent of Christ as opposed to after. This long explanation I just went through was intended to demonstrate the difference between the type of Salah, between the type of pardon that comes from the Father through our mediator, Yeshua, and the type of Salah that came to Israel by means of their mediator, Moses. Under Moses, the relationship with God would continue... And God would postpone that punishment, and he would not destroy the guilty, but the sin itself. And all the guilt associated with it would remain. Under Christ, punishment is still due to the guilty party. But the punishment due the guilty party is borne by Jesus. More importantly, the sin itself is also pardoned the guilt is removed. The iniquity and the guilt of the sin is forgotten and dissolved. This is one of the reasons that Paul, who understood well this principle of vertical retribution, called the New Covenant a better covenant. Because the New Covenant did things the earlier covenant couldn't do, Because the earlier covenant wasn't designed to do them. No earlier covenant saved. Because they weren't designed to save. They were designed for other purposes. And forgiving both the punishment and the sin itself was one of the great features of the new covenant. So, resuming Numbers 14... God announces that while he will not immediately destroy the rebels, that as a consequence for their great apostasy, they will never be allowed to enter the promised land. And the Lord defines the group that shall not enter as those 20 years of age and up. Why that group? Because they were the army. They were the fighting men. But they had refused to fight. In verse 24, God makes an exception. He says that Caleb, one of the two scouts who said that Israel should stand on God's promises and immediately take on Canaan, will be allowed to go into the land. Later, God makes specific mention of Joshua as another that will be permitted to enter Canaan because he too argued for Israel to go forward against Canaan. Okay, Let's uh, continue reading a little more in this chapter. Go to verse 25. We're going to read that through 38. Now since Amalekhi and the Kenani are living in the valley, tomorrow turn around and get yourselves into the desert along the way to the Sea of Suf. And Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, How long am I to put up with this evil community who keeps grumbling against me? I have heard against, the, I have heard the complaints of the people of Israel, which they continue to raise against me. Tell them this, as surely as I live, Adonai swears, as surely as you've spoken in my ears, I will do this to you. Your carcasses will fall in this desert. Every single one of you who are included in the census over the age of twenty, you who have complained against me, will certainly not enter the land about which I raised my hand to swear that I'd have you live in it, except for Kalev the son of Yafune, and Yahshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would be taken as booty, them I'll bring in. They will know the land you've rejected, but you, your carcasses will fall in this desert, and your children will wander about in the desert for 40 years, bearing the consequences of your prostitutions until the desert eats up your carcasses. It will be a year for every day you spent reconnoitering the land that you will bear the consequences of your offenses. 40 days, 40 years. Then you will know what it means to oppose me. I, Adonai, have spoken. I will certainly do this to the whole evil community, who have assembled together against me, they will be destroyed in this desert and die there. The men whom Moshe had sent to reconnoiter the land and who, when they returned, made the entire community complain against him by giving an unfavorable, unfavorable report about the land. Those men who gave the unfavorable report about the land died by the plague in the presence of Adonai. Of the men who went to reconnoiter the land, only Yahushua, the son of Nun, and Kalev, the son of Yefune remained alive. In verse 34, the Lord explains why it is that Israel is going to wander a total of 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years represents one year of wandering for each day the scouts were gone scouting out the land. Really what's being demonstrated here is the principle of measure for measure, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, proportional and symbolic justice. But Jehovah had a special punishment for those scouts who came back with the bad report and convinced the people of Israel to go with their way of thinking and to rebel against God, they died immediately from a divine plague. Exactly what that plague was, we're not told. Now you would think that the enormity of the tragedy of this situation along with its consequences would have convinced the people of Israel that God is almighty He is sovereign, and what he says he'll do, he'll do it. But allow me to reread to you the last few verses of this chapter, which shows just how the people reacted to God's judgment now upon them. So I'm going to read from verse 39 to the end. When Moses told these things to all the people of Israel, the people felt great remorse. They arose early the next morning, came up to the top of the mountain and said, Here we are, and we did sin. But now, we'll go up to the place Adonai promised. And Moses answered, Why are you opposing what Adonai said? You won't succeed. Don't go up there, because Adonai is not with you. If you do, your enemies will defeat you. The Amalekim and the Kena'im are there ahead of you, and you will be struck down by the sword. The reason will be that you have turned away from following Adonai, so Adonai won't be with you. But they were presumptuous, and went on up toward the high parts of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai and Moses stayed in the camp. So the Amalekim and the Canaim living in the hill country, descended struck them down and beat them all the way back to Hormah amazing the people's response to all this is that they're going to continue to ignore what God has determined go ahead and do it now what they should have done before march on to Canaan but there's a problem God didn't give them choice A, B or C God didn't give them the possibility of realizing their error and then being able to get out of the consequences he's pronounced by now going ahead into the promised land. Moses knew full well this was not to be. So Moses tells the people, don't do this. Don't do it. And he said, you're certainly not taking the Ark of the Covenant with you. I'm not going with you. And the effect... Of neither the ark nor Moses leading them meant that neither God's presence nor his mediator would be with those who planned to now go ahead and march on Canaan. The people basically said, ah, who cares? And they ignored Moses. And they ignored God. And so they lit out for Canaan on their own. The result was that the Amalekites and the Canaanites attacked this ill-prepared group of Israelites, crushing them. Ooh, what a lesson. (laughs) Uh, Our parents or our bosses or those in authority may pronounce a punishment upon us for our offenses against them and we just might sweet talk our way around it. We might just agree to go ahead and do what we should have done in the first place after we found out just how uncomfortable the consequences were going to be and then everything would be just fine. In fact, within families and organizations, even in our justice system, we see that very thing happen a lot. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way with the Lord. Once he pronounces it upon you, it's done. He's not a man that he should change. It's one thing to go forward with God's blessing in his timing to attack a worthy task. It's quite another to approach that same task when God has deemed his time has passed, or he's no longer in it, or he's turned that task over to somebody else, for whatever reason. God gives us windows of opportunity in his time, and then they close. The timing is always his, not ours. How often we say, yes God, just not right now. How about later? Right now really isn't too good for me. You know, it is foolish, it is just utter foolishness to try and pry those closed windows open at a later date, even though we might achieve what appears to be some small measure of success when we do it. More than likely, though, we're going to be utterly defeated, as were those Israelites who would not submit to God. Israelites who still had not learned to take God seriously. And they paid a really terrible price for it. We'll pick up Numbers chapter 15 next time. That'll do it for tonight.